Well, good morning again. Uh, as always, it is a joy and privilege to be able to proclaim God's word to you this morning. Uh, you may be able to tell I have a bit of a raspy voice, uh, so I'm going to try to push through. I hope I'm able to be heard. David could always turn me up a little bit. There you go. If you have a copy of God's word with you, would you turn? <clears throat> excuse me. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 14? For the last few weeks, we've been in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus began teaching in parables. It was one of those large blocks of teaching that structures the book of Matthew. In those parables, Jesus taught us about the kingdom of heaven and what the kingdom of heaven looks like from different perspectives. Jesus taught us about how we hear the word of God and how the kingdom grows and how valuable the kingdom is. And one of the things that we've seen in Matthew so far is the way that the stories, the narrative parts of the gospel, relate to the teachings of Jesus. Very often, Matthew will follow up the teaching of Jesus with a real-life story that illustrates what he has just taught us. And that seems to be exactly what's going on here in Matthew 14. This story is gross, it's strange, it's sad, It's out of sequence, but it is exactly what we need to see following the parables of Jesus. This is the final story in this life of John the Baptist. Remember the last time we heard about John was in chapter 11, and he was in prison and wondering if Jesus was actually the Messiah everyone was waiting for. In that passage, we weren't told why John was in prison, but we find that out here. This passage begins with Herod hearing about Jesus, and he's afraid that Jesus might be John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Since John was alive and in prison last time we heard about him, hearing that he's dead prompts Matthew to tell that story. And it may seem out of sequence and strange, but Matthew seems to be carefully showing us what Jesus' teaching looks like in real life. In the characters of Herod and John, he draws back on what Jesus just told us about the various responses to the kingdom. And the suffering of John isn't just an illustration of the surprising growth of the kingdom. It's also a precursor of what is to come in Jesus' kingdom. John won't be the last person in the kingdom to die for righteousness' sake. Most importantly, Jesus himself will seem to lose control of what is going on, will also be unjustly arrested, just like John, and he will die. But in the kingdom of heaven, suffering and death are the true way to life. Whether it is in this current culture or in your own life, you may be looking around you and thinking, surely this is all wrong. Surely this isn't what growth looks like. For you, Jesus points you back to this promise and to his teaching, and he asks if you have ears to hear him. Before we hear from his word, though, let's go to our Father in prayer. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves to you, And we fall down before your majesty. 
We ask you that this seed, this word of your gospel that is now being sown among us may take such deep root in our hearts and lives that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it out. But we pray as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth the fruit of a changed life, 30, 60, and even a hundredfold. Do this in us by the power of your spirit and to the glory of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. As we look through this passage today, we're going to see three things. And they're going to be three things that we were already taught but are now illustrated to us. First, we're going to see the cares of the world choking out the word of God. Second, we're going to see someone giving up everything for the treasure that is hidden in the field. And then thirdly, we're going to be asked the question, do you have ears to hear? The story begins by introducing us to a new character, and along with him, a slew of complicated relationships. The character we meet is called Herod the Tetrarch in verse 1. The reason why that can be confusing is because we already met a Herod in Matthew chapter 2. Remember, he was the one who tried to trick the wise men into telling him where Jesus was born. And in fury, when they went the other way, he frantically ordered that all the boys in the region of Bethlehem, two years old and younger, be killed. History knows him as Herod the Great. But that Herod died while Jesus and his family were still in Egypt. This new Herod is one of Herod the Great's sons. When Herod the Great died, he divided his kingdom between three of his seven sons. Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip number two. I'm not kidding. He named two of his sons Philip. So we know them as Philip number one and Philip number two. The Herod that we are meeting here in Matthew 14 is Herod Antipas. He ruled over the regions of Galilee and Perea from the death of his father in 4 BC until his own death in AD 39. Like his dad, Herod Antipas does not turn out to be a good guy. 
In verses 1 and 2, all we see is that Herod hears about Jesus because he is famous. And he has a weird thought. He tells one of his servants who, is, who he is, he tells one of his servants who he is afraid that this Jesus might be. He says in verse 2, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And because he mentions that John the Baptist is dead, Matthew tells us the story of how and sheds light on why Herod is afraid. Turns out that Herod seems to have had a decent bit of interaction with John. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6 that Herod knew that John was a righteous and holy man. He listened to John speak the word of God, and even though he was perplexed by the things that John said, Mark tells us that Herod heard him gladly. Have you heard the old saying, Woe preacher, now you've gone from preaching to meddling. People will say it when the preaching of God's word gets a bit too personal for comfort. We don't know what Herod typically heard John say when he heard him preach. But we do know that at least one thing went from preaching to meddling. John the Baptist had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Meaning, it is not lawful for you to have that woman as your wife. That woman, or her, as verse 4 says, was a woman named Herodias. Herodias had been the wife of Philip number 1, this Herod's brother. In order for her to marry Antipas, he he divorced his first wife, and then she divorced Philip. John knows that this is against God's law. Marriage, as the Bible tells us, is a covenant relationship, not a contract. You can't break that covenant for new partners like you do cell phones. Sorry, that was not meant to be a joke. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, is going to tell us a bit more about divorce and remarriage. And like any sin, God's grace offers forgiveness to those who trust in Jesus. But John is calling out the sin. To make matters more serious and also more complicated, Herodias was also the niece of Antipas and Philip I. She was the daughter of one of their brothers. This violated the laws in Leviticus about consanguinity or how close in relation you could be to marry someone. In case you weren't sure, you're not allowed to marry your niece. The call of John to Herod was the same as his call everywhere else we see him. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had now directed that call personally to Herod. Matthew uses a verb that suggests that John kept on saying this. John had been saying to him. And what we find out is that this really bothered Herodias. Herodias wanted to kill John because of what he was saying. But instead of killing him, Herod decided to throw John in jail. We'll come back to why in a moment. But the scene fast forward to a big birthday party Herod throws for himself. He invited all the high and important people he knew to this party, and it would have lasted for several days. As you might guess, it wouldn't have been a very wholesome party. Lots of drinking and bad decisions. And one of those bad decisions is that 
Herod called in Herodias' daughter to dance for them. Herod liked her dancing, we're told, and decided to reward her for it. He promised her that she could have whatever she might ask. The daughter had conspired for this with her mother, and she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod didn't want to do it, but he also didn't want to break his word in front of all his guests. So he sent an executioner to behead him right there in the prison. And that is how John the Baptist died. So what's the point of this story? Other than tying up the narrative of one of the early main characters, why does Matthew tell us this? Well, as we've already mentioned, Herod seems to be a perfect illustration of what Jesus taught us about the kingdom of heaven. Remember what we learned from Mark. Herod knows that John is a righteous and holy man and even likes hearing the word of God from him. But in this short narrative, we notice one very obvious character trait of Herod's. Herod cares a lot what other people think. In verse 1, he hears about Jesus, but Matthew says it in an interesting way. He says Herod heard about the fame or the reputation of Jesus. The most important thing about Jesus to Herod is how much people are talking about him. Verse 3, we see that he threw John in prison for the sake of Herodias. She was the one who seems to have been the most upset about what John was saying. And so Herod sought to appease her. And though she wanted him dead, which caused part of Herod to also want him dead, verse 5 says that he feared the people. His wife wanted John dead, but the people might revolt. So Herod's compromise in his attempt to avoid the anger of both groups is to throw him in prison. And then in verse 9, we see that even though he realized he had made a huge mistake in offering his stepdaughter whatever she wanted, he made his decision to keep his word because of his oaths and his guests. Herod doesn't seem to make any decisions by his own conscience. Just about everything he does is trying to avoid the anger or gain the favor of other people. We call this a people pleaser. The Bible calls this the fear of man. And when you pair that with his initial gladness at hearing the word from John, then Herod is a perfect picture of the third type of soil that we saw in the parable of the sower. He has let the cares of the world choke out the word of God in his life. When we heard that parable, it could have just been an abstract idea. But now we see it play out in flesh and blood. Herod heard the call of the gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But when that call became specific, when he was called to repent not just of sin in general, but of his sins in particular, Herod made every other care more important than obeying the word of God. When you look at Herod, you need to ask yourself, is this how I hear the word of God? When God's word confronts you, do you immediately think, what will other people think? Or, my spouse or boyfriend isn't going to like it if I obey God on that issue. 
Or, but look at everything that I would have to give up. Do you let the cares of the world keep you from coming to Jesus? It's another important thing that we notice about Herod, by the way. This whole gospel has been about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Herod gets both of those things terribly wrong. He is convinced that Jesus is a resurrected version of John, perhaps coming to take vengeance on him for killing him. In reality, Jesus is God himself, the Messiah, not coming yet to judge sinners, but to invite them to come to him for forgiveness and rest. Herod is too worried about other people and afraid of his sins to see Jesus clearly and come to him. Instead of repenting like John called him to, he silenced the word of God by killing John. So that's what we see illustrated in Herod. What about John? Remember that we already know about John the Baptist. We first met him in Matthew chapter 3. He was the one prophesied by Isaiah, the forerunner of the Messiah, preparing the way for Jesus. He was declaring the message of Jesus, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. Even when we saw John's doubt in chapter 11, Jesus still praised him. He proclaimed that John was indeed a prophet, but not just any prophet. He was the one whom Isaiah and Malachi said would prepare the way for Jesus. He was the hinge point between the Old Testament prophets and the kingdom of God coming into the world in Jesus. And Jesus said about him personally, among those born of women, there has not arisen, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. In this passage today, we see very little of what John actually did. All of that is in the background. But we do see the outcome. John proclaimed the word of God. He proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. And he called people everywhere to repent and come to Jesus. Not just easy people. He even called the pseudo-king, the ruler of the region, to turn from his sins and come to Jesus. And the result of a life devoted to Jesus for John was that he was bound, thrown in prison, and unjustly executed. To the outside world, it looks like John wasted his life. But to those in the kingdom, it is clear that John gave up everything for the treasure hidden in the field. Again, when we heard the parables in the last few weeks, it could have been an abstract idea for you. But when we see John, we see the parables played out in real life. John is clearly someone who was part of the kingdom. He was the first one to announce the kingdom. He baptized Jesus. He was his own personal prophet. Jesus said that John was that link between the Old Testament forerunners and the kingdom itself. But I also think it's important for us not to flatten John out. Even though he gave up everything for Jesus, he didn't do it with unwavering confidence and a smile always on his face. He had doubts while he sat in prison and uncertainty about whether he was doing the right thing. That's important for us to hear. Even genuine Christians who sell everything for the kingdom will have doubts and fears and uncertainty. 
Our faith is often the size of a mustard seed. The difference between John and Herod is that John pushed through his fears. He clung to Jesus even when he was uncertain, whereas Herod silenced the voice of Jesus. So as you see in real life someone giving up everything for the treasure of Jesus, you need to ask yourself, is this me? Am I willing to give up my comfort, my reputation, even my life for Jesus? It is important to see that God has probably called you to something different than he has called John to. John confronts Herod in his sin, probably not just as a random political ruler, but as one ruling over God's people. Remember, prophets in the Old Testament almost always had a particular calling to confront the sins of the kings who were over God's people. If you have a neighbor living with her boyfriend, and I hear that every morning this week you stood in front of her door calling out, it is unlawful for you to have him then we probably need to have a conversation about an appropriate call to repentance. But hear this, the call isn't optional. God has placed you where he has placed you for a reason. It isn't kind to let people you know and interact with persist in unrepentant sin. As we saw in the parables, the result of that will be judgment an eternity in hell. We have found the treasure. It's Jesus. And he's not just the get out of hell free card, but the most joyful and valuable thing in this world. Sin is an imposter in this world. You were created not for sin, but to live in relationship with God, to glorify and enjoy him forever. And so when you call the people you know to love and love to repent, you're calling them to Jesus. And what John shows us is that call is going to cost you something. Jesus tells you that it will cost you your whole life. He says later to his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And what you give up will not be given up in vain. We don't get to see it here, but we know from the rest of the scriptures what happens to John, what he receives. He looks like the one in the story who loses, but he gains the victory. The very moment that John's head is separated from his body, he is rejoicing before the throne of God in glory. At the resurrection, the beheaded John will have the crown of life placed on his restored head. The sacrifice is worth it. That is what John the Baptist shows us in this story. So that's what we see here. We see two opposite examples of responses to Jesus. One who can't get past the cares of the world, and so he silences God's word. And the other who, even though he is wavering, even though he struggles, he gives up everything for the treasure in the field. He gives up everything for the joy of knowing Jesus. But we need to learn more from this story. If we stop there, then this is just a character assessment and a call to be like John. Don't be like Herod. 
that this story isn't just one of Aesop's fables. It's a story in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we zoom out from the story, we see more of what is going on. This is a pivotal moment in the story of Jesus. This will probably be surprising to you, but John is the first person who we have seen die in the gospel since Matthew 2 and the little boys in Bethlehem. We've talked so much about persecution and suffering and giving up your life that it's hard to believe, but all the opposition we've seen so far has been verbal and scheming. With the death of John, we finally see that someone will go beyond threats and words to imprisonment and murder. And if you look ahead at verse 13, this is a big deal for Jesus. At the end of the story of John, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. There are two options for what he is doing. It's probably both. The first is that Jesus is mourning the death of John. He was his cousin and his prophet and in all likelihood his friend. But the other option is that Jesus is going to a hidden place because of what we read in verse 1. Herod has heard about Jesus. In that case, he is getting away from potential persecution that may become more widespread. Either way, this is a change in what has been happening so far. We are going to see opposition grow toward Jesus and his disciples. You know how in a lot of feel-good stories or movies, as the story goes on, you can begin to see that all the pieces are finally coming together. The football team finally has chemistry with one another, and they're winning game after game as they approach the playoffs. Or you can see the man and woman who have been kind of back and forth, and you can tell that they're finally going to fall for each other. There are those building moments where you realize that it is all going to work out. The gospel story seems to be the opposite. It's almost like things are unraveling more and more the further you go. Main characters die and are shown to be traitors. The opposition keeps growing and getting more organized. Jesus tells more of his plan, and his disciples seem to understand everything less and less as we go. Rather than everything coming together, it seems like everything is falling apart. And the question for us is, do we have ears to hear? Were we paying attention when Jesus told us about the growth of the kingdom? Evil will grow up alongside the good in the kingdom. The beginning of the kingdom will be hidden, a seed planted under the ground, leaven hidden inside a mound of flour. We laugh at the disciples for their answer when Jesus asked them last week, have you understood all these things? They immediately respond, yes, even though we know they still don't get it. But are we so different? Do you look around at your life and say, where's the growth, Jesus? I thought you promised that you would bring to completion the good work you began in me. I thought I would see the fruit of joy and peace growing in my life. This doesn't look like growth. And Jesus says to us, have you understood all these things 
that I taught you. Growth doesn't always look like progress over the short term. It doesn't always feel like things are going right. It is slow, insignificant. I was talking to another Christian this week, and he was saying that one of the things that is hardest about the Christian life is that growth doesn't seem to be growth for him. It seems to be like losing and letting go of good things. It seems like the increased realization of our own weakness. And that's right. It's not the case in every way. You should see times of increased fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. On the whole, you should see increased obedience and increased love for Christ in your life. But growth in Christ doesn't equal better circumstances. It doesn't equal more friends or easier relationships. It doesn't equal worldly success or warm, fuzzy feelings. Jesus has been teaching us that the growth of the kingdom of heaven doesn't look the way we would expect it. Maybe you look around at the world and you think, how could growth look like this? This secularized, unbelieving culture. How could growth look like people leaving the church and denying Christ? Part of the answer is that we need to zoom out and see that Christianity exists in other places other than the United States because it's growing visibly like crazy in other parts of the world. But another part of the answer is that growth does not always look the way that we would expect. We wouldn't expect growth and success to be our king getting arrested and being beaten and mocked and flogged. But that's what's coming in this gospel. We wouldn't have expected the victory of the kingdom to look like the death of Jesus. But it does. That moment is the moment where everything is falling apart. Everything is crumbling. And it is in that moment, the death of Jesus on the cross, that Paul tells us that he triumphed over the spiritual forces of this world and crushed the head of Satan. It's in that moment that Jesus achieved our salvation by taking the punishment for every one of our sins, past, present, and future. His death was the way to victory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Brothers and sisters, we we follow a God who chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. We follow a God who chooses to gain victories that look like defeats. But when Jesus hung on that cross and with his dying breath said these words, it is finished. He was proclaiming the victory. May we trust him in the ways that he brings growth and gains the victory, both in our lives and in this world. Would you all pray with me?
Father, we thank you that you are so patient in teaching us. We are those of little faith. Lord, we pray that the man in Mark 9, we believe, help our unbelief. Continue to give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you are at work doing in this world and in our lives. We pray that we would see in Jesus, even in his death, our salvation, and that we would cling to him all the days of our life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.